Hello, and welcome to the Destiny Church Podcast. We trust that this will be a great encouragement to you and build your faith. Enjoy today's message. We've been in a series. It's titled Race to Life, and essentially what it is, man, we uh, actually, next week, we finish this season. We close it out. I'm, I'm pretty sure we've made it through the entire book of Ephesians verse by verse. I think that's worth celebrating. So, so really, uh, and that's exactly what the series has been, a, a detailed tour, verse by verse, through the book of Ephesians, and it's been incredible. I, I've said this, I will continue to repeat it, but this book is, is set up in a way where um, God, God basically, Paul spends the first three chapters of Ephesians basically reminding us, educating us on all that it means to be united with Christ Jesus, like how life-changing that is. And, and I think sometimes what, what we don't understand is we step into this relationship with Jesus and maybe in that moment, it was emotional. Maybe in that moment, it felt tangible. And then we, and we walk around life and it feels like, man, nothing's changed. Everything's the same. But I want to encourage you guys. Maybe sometimes the present doesn't, doesn't feel like it's changed, but Ephesians 1 tells us we've received every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Come on, there's a whole heavenly realm we're a part of that we cannot see, but our physical realm is affected by that heavenly realm and everything's changed in the heavenlies for us. We've received every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, like I already told you guys, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good things, which he planned for us long ago. Ephesians 3, it says, God's able to do more than we can think, ask, or imagine. He's so good. He's so big. He's so majestic, right? We spend the first three chapters of Ephesians learning about all that it means for us to be reunited with Jesus and all that means for us. And it's, it's beyond comprehension. It's so good. It's so good. So then we, we take chapters four, five, and six. Paul c- continues to write. He wants us to know all about the relationship before we know about the rules. That, that's how we set it up. So as we go through four, five, and six, it's practical godly living in response to all that God's done for us. He says, so, he, so here's how we live this thing out. Here's how we live as people full of faith. Here's how we live as people full of God's presence and power. Right, and, and that's where we find ourselves. Paul strongly desires to see the church in Ephesus mature. Paul is an apostle. He deeply cares about the health of the church and, and, the, and the growth of the body in Ephesus. Paul's spirit-inspired instruction for the church in Ephesus is only for the, to benefit the health and maturity of the body. Deeply caring about all aspects of the church, Paul found it imperative for the marriages to be healthy and thriving, gave us clear instruction on that. Last week, we talked about those relationships, and I'm not going to revisit that, but did y'all, come on, did y'all walk out of here like, you heard that, right? Like, you heard, come on, did we respect and love each other this past week? Three people, praise God. Leading into chapter six, Paul continues this conversation. I'm going to leave the marriage conversation alone for this week, okay? So he, he moves on. Y'all are like, amen, okay? We move on, so we move on from that, but he continues to talk about God's ideal for our relationships in our lives because our our marriage relationships aren't our only relationships. Some of us have kids. Some of us have relationships in our our communities with our employers or employees. There's other relationships we have in life just as did the people of um, Ephesus. And Paul cares so deeply about the people of the church, about God's people. He wants every area of their life to be healthy, maturing, and growing. And this is gonna contribute to the health of the church. So he takes time to to stick his nose into the other relationships in Ephesus' lives, and we can read it for ourselves and into our lives as well. So what I plan to do, we're going to read Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 9. 
Okay, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take about the next 30 minutes breaking it down. Does that sound okay? Y'all ready? Here we go. Ephesians 6, verse 1 through 9. It says this. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. All the parents said, let's go. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Things will go well for you. Or, or I'm sorry, this is the first command with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you and you will have a long life on earth. Fathers, say yeah. yeah. Don't provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Paul's saying our work is worship. We, we can honor and glorify God with every aspect of our life. Paul's saying to the people, we'll get into this later, but he's saying, hey, just, don't just do the right thing when everyone's looking, right? Do the right thing when you're by yourself, have integrity. Um, verse eight, remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good that we do, whether we're slaves or we're free. And then verse nine, he addresses the masters. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven and he has no favorites. Okay, so, some interesting, interesting verses here. I'm excited to break them down. Uh, but before we do, let's pray. Jesus God, I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be in your house and, and to communicate your word. God, I, I'm standing in one of your promises right now. You put, this, you, you put this calling in my heart as a teen boy. So I'm so grateful that you've allowed me to experience this opportunity. And God, as I communicate your word this morning, um, I, I pray that you would till the soil of the people's hearts in this room. Uh, maybe they're listening on a podcast and I pray you'd prepare their heart as well. Let our heart be full of good soil, ready to receive the seed of your word. I pray it'd take root, it'd grow to produce fruit in our lives. As we go through your word every week, I don't want us to just be a group of people who come in here and we listen to it and never apply it. You say that those who hear your word but don't do it, they're deceiving themselves. Let that not be us, God. We, we, we wanna be healthy and growing and maturing into the church that you've called us to be. Um, so help us to apply the word to our life in your holy and mighty name, amen. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. I love how Paul takes advantage of the fact that in the public reading of this letter, he knew that there would be youth you know, sitting, sitting in the area. So he takes full advantage to talk to these kids like, and come on, we know teenagers 2,000 years ago, we're still teenagers, right? Mom, why do I always gotta be the one to clean the donkey stall, you know? <laughs> come on, dad. Why do I got to carry the heaviest wheat basket? You know, whatever their chores were. I don't know, something related. But come on, mom. Every other kid gets to go to rock with the flock without their parents. Why do you guys have to come with me? Right? Teenagers are still the same. Oh, man. And those who are parents in the room, you know, you can't help but amen Paul right here. It's like, I'm glad somebody said it. Come on, and had the audacity to put it in the Bible. Praise God. He's good. But I, but I think raising good, godly kids may be one of the most difficult, sacrificial, emotional, wearisome, joyful, 
heartbreaking and rewarding experience that we may experience on earth if, if, if we're so blessed to experience that. Um, and those who are children in the room, uh, which is all of us, obviously, unless you're, no, I'm just kidding. We're, we're, all, we're all children, but those specifically 18 or under, um, y'all would probably agree, like, yeah, it sounds good on paper that we should listen to everything our parents tell us to do, and we should honor and obey them, but sometimes my parents are just wrong, Pastor Mark. Like, let's just keep it 100, okay? Uh, lit on fleek, whatever you kids say. You know, it's a bop, it's a slap, hey. Um, sometimes my parents are wrong, Pastor Mark. Or, or they just don't get it, okay? They don't get our season of life. They don't know how TikTok videos work, okay? <laughs> they don't get it. You know, something I always struggled with as a kid, like something that really kind of frustrated me, and my parents would be like, Mark, you got to go make your bed. Okay, I, I get it, and I get I'm supposed to listen to my parents, but why? Why should I make my bed if in 10 hours I'm going to come and mess this thing right back up again? Just explain that to me. Now I love my bed made, and... You know, if you're in my house, you're making your bed, but um, <laughs> like if uh, one of the worst things, though, my, my parents ever did it, and I'm confident my parents love me, and, and y'all know I love my parents, um, but they also did some cruel things to me as a young boy who loved Jesus deeply and never sinned. Um, oh, come on. We lived in Ohio for about six or seven years, and uh, when I was growing up, and we had three acres of land. Two, two of it was kind of wooded area, um, but then we had about an acre of land that was just, you know, fenced in lawn pretty much. And because we had some land, we had to, you know, decided to acquire some animals. So we had two horses, two doves, and a partridge, and a bear. <laughs> you know, we had uh, all types of animals. We had tons of cats. We had hamsters. Rest in, rest in peace, Chad and Rad. If, if you know, you know. But then we had three Mastiffs, okay? And so if you don't know, Mastiffs are a breed of dog, and they're a massive breed of dog. We took one of our Mastiffs, when it was getting to the end of its life, we took it to the vet, and, and before they put it down, they weighed the dog. I have no idea why they weighed the dog before they put it down, as if it was going to do anything to benefit it. But um, when this dog got on the scale, it was 240 pounds. You know who weighs 240 pounds? Me <laughs> and Aaron Martin, okay? That's a big dog. That's a big dog. We had three of them, church, okay? So you can imagine a dog that big, how much food a dog that big eats and the kind of damage that dog does to one acre of land fenced in. My parents thought it was a good idea to put me on dinosaur dog doo-doo dirt <laughs> duty, okay? I had to walk around the yard and pick up after the dogs, okay? I'm telling you, this doo-doo was like dinosaurs took it. It was massive, okay? It's like, this is like walking around picking up human feces. I cannot deal. Like, this is terrible. So I'm, literally, even while I was thinking about it, like while I was writing this, I was like, I, I could have gagged thinking about it. And, and, and something about me, my nose is so sensitive. Like, I just have an incredibly sensitive nose, re really good sense of smell. And as I'm like walking through the yard, I literally am fighting vomit the entire time. I, I know this is TMI. Um, but hey, it built character, right? It built character. Um, and it, but as silly as it sounds, I think me walking around the yard on duty duty, right? 
I think it pleased the Lord for me as a son to be obedient to my parents and, and do what they asked me to do. Like, I think the Lord was pleased that young Mark Jr. was walking around the yard obeying his parents. You know, and in the, in the same way we discussed wives unconditionally respecting their husbands, even, even if they deserve it or not. Um, kids, your, your parents may ask things of you that you don't want to do or things to do that you think are embarrassing or you, or you think they're stupid, but I want you to understand that the Lord has asked you to obey your parents, okay? And here's what I found, that. Jesus doesn't ask us to do things he's not willing to do himself. And the Lord never gives us instruction for no reason. There's always some sort of purpose to do the things he asks us to do, right? Um, and we specifically, in the life of Jesus, we see that even Jesus obeyed his parents. John chapter 2, Jesus shows up to a wedding. He's with all his friends. His mom's there. And we watch an interesting interaction take place between these two. Check this out. John 2, verses 1 through 8. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivity. So Jesus' mother told them, uh, Jesus, they have no more wine. And Jesus goes, dear woman, that's not our problem. He's like, mom, I, I understand what you're asking me to do. He's like, my time has not yet come. Jesus knows that he's essentially the Messiah. Mary knows that Jesus was given to her, you know, through divine conception here. So Mary's like, Jesus, I, I know you have the ability to do something about this. I want you to fix it. And Jesus is like, Mom, it's not my problem. I'm, I'm not fixing it. It's not my time. I'm not showing the world not, you know, the glory yet. It's not that time. And I love in the next line, you'll see what his mom does. His mom doesn't continue to have the conversation with Jesus. She bypasses that. She says, you shut up. It doesn't say this. This is, you know, I'm just interpreting. She goes, that's fine. She looks at the servants and she says, do what he tells you to do. AKA, I told you to do it. You're going to do it. Okay, this is Jesus' mom. Seriously, she goes, but, but the mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby, standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. So Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. Mom said so, right? Fill the jars with water. And when the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of the ceremonies. The servants followed his instructions. We see even Jesus and what, what is so beautiful about this, John 13, it says, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Even a man with that much power, that much authority, that much ability, that, that much status, that much glory dwelling within him, still listen to his mama. So we got no excuse, kids, okay? Jesus even obeyed his earthly parents. Now, I told you, Jesus isn't telling us to do anything. He's not willing to do himself but also he's not gonna give us purposeless instruction, okay? So let's read, let's continue to read in Ephesians 6 why it's vital that kids obey your parents um, outside of God saying so. Ephesians 6, one through two, it says this, children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. And then, and then this is key, it says, this is your first commandment with a promise. Is anyone grateful for the promises of God? Come on. He says, I'm telling you this because when you do this, there's a promise attached to it, okay? So in the same way, two plus two equals four, right? Obey your parents means this. 
Come on, if you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you. If you honor your father and mother, and now keep in mind, Paul's communicating this with a preconceived idea that he's talking to parents who are believers, who have full intentions of leading their kid to Jesus, right? He's he's saying, listen, your, your, your father and your mother, they have your best intention in mind. Now you are you're a kid. You don't understand. You're, you're, you know, you got flesh you're wrestling with still and, and you're not fully mature. And you might think this is a good idea, but you just don't have the maturity to make some of these decisions for yourselves. Okay. They're saying, listen, this is the first command with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you. You'll have a long life on earth. Now, one of the many incredible things about God is that he's a God of promises, right? And Paul tells children, listen, honor your father and mother and things will go well for you. Honor your father and mother, things will go well. Now, kids in the room, especially in this season of life, you have to understand that in the same way prayer is a spiritual discipline, in the same way worship is a spiritual discipline, reading your Bible is a spiritual discipline, you know, who, are, who we decide our closest friends to be in the season, I think is a spiritual discipline. Obeying your father and mother is a spiritual discipline, okay? We, I mean, if we, if we wanna be good Christians, if we want to serve the Lord well, serve the Lord wholeheartedly, give him, the, give him the most of us, we can worship the Lord in the way that we honor and obey our parents. Um, and then it says, when you do this, it pleases the Lord and, and he rewards that behavior. So I'll say this, on the occasion you have parents who are encouraging you to do anything that is sin or in blatant rebellion to the things of God, whether that be deceitfulness or to partake in any sort of abuse or, or things like that, Listen, I'm not telling you to oblige to those things. We always honor God, right? His, his command becomes first. We honor God over honoring man. So I'm not saying that. Again, this is Paul communicating this with, with the preconceived notion, with the prerequisite that these parents are believers and, and, they're, and they want the best for this kid, okay? Um, so, uh, so that's that. Paul speaks to the children. And then I find it interesting that Paul pivots. And when he pivots, he doesn't just speak to the parents, but more specifically, he speaks to the fathers. He says, all right, dads, talks to the kids, but then he says this in, in Ephesians 6, 4. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up in the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Now, there's a great balance to discern here in, in this realm of discipline with the children. Paul writes not to provoke your children to anger, but in the same breath, he commands the parents, but you need to discipline your kid, right? And we've never had our, you know, disciplined our kid and they smiled like, oh, that made me so happy, right? How do we discern? And and maybe we're we're sitting in the room like thinking like, man, I I discipline my kids and they get angry or discouraged when I I discipline them. So so what's the balance there? Like don't provoke them to anger, but at the same time, discipline them. And and before we talk about that, I I just want to point out something that's so incredible about the gospel is it revolutionized relationships. Because how many know that our God is a God of relationships, right? So, So for Paul to write, dads, consider how your kids feel was revolutionary. That was like, you do what I say. I don't care how you feel. You know, this was a, a patriarchal society. And, and Paul's saying, listen, we, we need to care about the way our kids feel. How, how they feel is important, right? Um, so he, he breathes this fresh element to parental responsibilities by insisting that the child's feelings be taken into consideration. And, 
Um, Solomon, who wrote the Proverbs, Solomon asked for one thing from the Lord. It was wisdom. God gifted him with wisdom. He's known as the wisest man to ever live. He wrote tons and tons on the topic of parenting. So I ripped a a bunch of Proverbs and, and just thought we should submit ourselves for a minute to Solomon's teachings on parenting and see if there's anything we can glean from this. So check this out. Some of the promises he wrote, some of the um, instructions he wrote in the Proverbs. Proverbs 22, 6, it says, train up your child and the way they should go, and, and, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Okay, there's been a calling here. We need to raise our kids up in the Lord, church. As a body of believers, it is imperative we raise our kids up in the Lord, and, and, and God partners with us in that process. Okay, so let that give you hope. Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. When we, when we neglect our kids, right, there, there's consequences of it. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And this rod is talking about physical discipline here, okay? Proverbs 29, 17, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Proverbs 22, 15. I, this might be one of my, my favorite ones out of this collection of scriptures here because the way it's worded, it says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. I, I think we have to understand our, our kids there have folly bound up in their heart. And they're not always able to recognize it. And and part of our job as parents is to drive out the folly from their heart. And and that's fruitful for so many reasons. It's fruitful because we're going to teach them how to have healthy relationships. Because if that folly's in there, it'll ruin all their relationships. Right? If we, if we drive out that folly, we're going to teach them how to make grown-up decisions and how to provide for themselves and to support themselves and live a life out on their own, right? We're, we're going to teach them how to lead others and love others well. But if we're unwilling to discipline our kids and we allow that folly to remain in their hearts, it's going to be so destructive to their soul. It's going to be so destructive to their quality of life, right? Parents, we're called to discipline our kids and raise them up in the instruction of the Lord. Moral of the story, come on, slap your kid upside the head so they'll act right. Amen? No, just kidding. So I'd like to say this. Based off what I see in the scriptures, I think physical discipline of our children is biblically justified, and I'd go as far to say it's fruitful in many ways. That being said, there is a point at which it becomes harmful, abusive, and unproductive. And this is what Paul is speaking to. Fathers, don't provoke your kids to anger, that, that line, right? And, and in a society where what dad said was absolute, physical discipline was common, you know, maybe child abuse was even more prevalent. Paul is telling parents, it is absolutely unacceptable and displeasing to the Lord to abuse your kids, to not care about the way. I want you to discipline them. I want you to raise them up in the Lord. I want you to take that seriously. That is your role. That is, you've been called to raise your kids up in the Lord and to discipline them, but do not abuse your kids. And while disciplining children often tends to be physical, can be, you know, we have to remember that as parents, we're, we're coming from a place of love. Like we, we have to remember um, our intentions behind our discipline. And ultimately it's to correct, train, cultivate godly character by driving out folly or wrong or harmful behavior from our children. Driving out that 
folly from their hearts so they can live a life, uh, the life that God intended for them, okay? Again, I love how Proverbs twenty two fifteen 15 explains follies bound up in the heart of these kids, and they're not always able to recognize that, okay? It's our job to help them get rid of that. Um, you know, this, this whole concept of finding this balance of discipline in our kids where, you know, we, we, we don't want to uh, discourage them, so to speak, but we also know that we need to discipline them and it's imperative for their character and their growth and their maturity. Uh, I'm brought back to this idea, and this is something I'll talk a lot about, um, is this idea of truth and grace truth and grace and having this balance of both. And you guys often hear me quote this scripture. It's something I bring up a lot. But John 1.14 says Jesus came full of grace and full of truth. And when Pastor Josh and I went to Montana, we sat around the table having dinner together. And there was a man who, who led devotions for us, a pastor who led devotions for us. And he asked us a really interesting question. He said, when you die, when you're on your deathbed, what do you want people to say about you? And one of the things that I said I wanted people to say about me is that I was lion and lamb and that I was full of grace and full of truth because that's what Jesus was. So, so what do you, but maybe there's some confusion on what does it look like to be full of grace and full of truth? Grace is, is so good because it, it, it allows us to experience love, to, to experience compassion, right? To, to, to experience relationship, kindness, and, and all those things are so good. But if all we are is grace and we never give anyone truth, then people are gonna stay bound and they're never gonna get free. The truth sets you free. So although it's, it's good to be kind and nice to each other, we have to give each other truth or else essentially our relationships are gonna be meaningless. It's gonna be meaningless. And, and I'm assuming I'm in a room full of people that want their relationships to have purpose, right? So I once heard an evangelist say like this, you know, because, because then if we're just all truth, though, and we're like, you know, you need to do this right, you need to act right, you know, you know. If we're all truth and we're never kind or compassionate or celebrate the wins or encourage, you know, then we're just could do more damage than good in our relationships. So, so what is the balance of, we see Jesus was full of grace, full of truth, What's the balance? I once heard an evangelist named Robert Madu. He said it like this, and I think it's so good. Maybe some of you have heard me say it, but I think it's worth repeating. If you're taking notes, I'd write this down. It's this. Grace without truth is meaningless. It's meaningless. Truth without grace is mean, but grace and truth is medicine. Grace and truth is medicine. We love people in the way that God desired us to love people when we love people full of grace and full of truth. Parents, fathers especially, we need to read the scriptures with our kids. We need to make it priority. We need to pray with our kids. Come on, even when they're rolling their eyes, even when it's uncomfortable, right? We need to encourage our kids. We need to celebrate our kids. We need to challenge our kids. We need to discipline our kids. We need to make every effort to love our kids well. This is our calling as parents. Paul finishes up with the family and then he, he, he makes another pivot, talks about another section of relationships and ultimately kind of talks about these business relationships that we'll experience in life. And he talks about how how even in those relationships, God can be honored and glorified through them. So let's check this out. Is that okay? Parents, we good? Ephesians 6, verses five through nine says this. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. 
Obey them, not only to win favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free. Paul's saying to the slaves in Ephesus at the time, slaves in the Roman era, it's, it, you know, the slavery was pretty common for there to be masters and you know, the wealthy could own as much as 200 slaves. Paul's saying, listen, you, you, don't just, you don't just do the right thing when people are watching. You don't just work hard to win favor with your master when he's watching. But what are you doing when no one's around? It, it's a call to integrity to those who, who are working, who are employed, right? And, and then he goes on and he says, listen, I know that right now in this season, in this moment in time, it appears as though your quality of life is, is really only based off your, your master. Your reward is only based off your master. Where your food's gonna come from, it comes from your master. Like where your housing's gonna come from is gonna come from your master and, and how they supply you. But, but he says, don't forget whether you're slave or you're free, God's gonna be the one who gives you your reward, right? So there's this call to, to trust him in that season. Paul is calling the slaves to trust God in the season. Um, and then, and then it continues on. Verse nine, he says, and masters. So then Paul takes time to address the masters and he says, treat your slaves in the same way. Same thing applies to you. Don't threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. So I think we need to start by addressing the elephant in the room. Is Paul saying slavery is okay? That, that's not what's happening here. And let us just clarify that slavery is displeasing to the Lord and no human should, end, should ever own any other human being as all lives matter, no matter the race, social class, gender, all have great significance and value in Christ, okay? So for some context here, slavery, although evil in, in, in many forms, uh, it was this huge part in Roman society. So Paul recognizes as he talks to a culture where a quarter of the population, people find themselves as slaves, they all find themselves in different circumstances. And a lot of the quality of their, of their life is based off how the master treats them. So there's, there's whoa, almost fell off the stage. Hey, we're getting right. So that's the first time I've ever done that. So, so some masters, man, they supply, they supply yes, they, they own the people, but they supply them food. They supply them a place to live. They treat them respectfully. Like we'll find out eventually, you know, because of this Christian movement that slaves start to actually find freedom. They'll save up money. They'll buy their freedom, but they stay, they stay to work for the master because the relationship was good. But Paul also recognizes that there's evil masters too who, who own people and they're abusing them and they're mistreating them. So instead of in, in a culture where slavery is a, a, almost a normal part of this society. Um, Paul takes time to address the masters and says, L listen, just because you own these people, this doesn't mean that we're, we're free to treat them however we want and abuse them or, or whatever this may be. Paul is trying to insert the truths of the gospel, these relationships in, into this point in time. But let, let's continue to talk about uh, this, this whole idea of slavery. Uh, like I said, it would be difficult for people in New Testament times to imagine life without slavery. Now, there were people who would speak out against the mistreatment of slaves. Um, you know, there would be slave revolts, but people, this concept of like, you know, abolishing slavery 
that wasn't so much a thought that they wrestled with because they understood like, this is where, this is where, uh, how I'm going to provide for my family. This is how I'm going to have food. This is, this is how I'm going to like provide, you know, uh, like this is my job. This is, this is me working. It was more about the way that we were being treated. So slavery in our context, in our understanding, it was different in the New Testament, but in ways there, there definitely are some similarities. But for the most part, the, the quality of life of the slave um, would experience was totally indicative of their master and how their master would treat them. So instead of maybe this unrealistic goal of Paul saying, to, to rid this, and Paul, Paul saying, okay, this is, this is a reality in the culture, right or wrong. It's a reality in the culture, and I recognize that there's evils in this. I'm going to infiltrate this with truth, right? And how many know we serve a God who is able to take what was meant for evil and to turn it for good, right? So he's challenging the masters in this way, trying to change his culture. And we'll see that because of the gospel, because of truth, right? Because we serve a God who's a God of relationship, you see that it actually starts to shift this slave culture, this corrupt slave culture in the Roman era. So um, again, some, some were kind, some masters were kind and provided high quality of life while others were cruel and abusive. And, and during this time, like slaves were from all different walks, all right? Some were conquered people, some were kidnapped, some were family members sold by other family members. Like, hey, I, I can't pay for this, so I'll, I'll give you my son to work for you, like, and they'll work for you. There was a whole lot of different circumstances where someone might become a slave to someone else. It wasn't so much just this one type of people was brought and, and put into slavery. That wasn't exactly what it looked like. Most important thing in the slave trade when, when, when people came to choosing their slaves, they, they would look for specific things to identify. They, they were m- m- looking for basically people who were able. They were like looking for strength, skills, and beauty. And then, so, so there would be people, and, and this is where we kind of see that employer and employee relationship where there were certain people who had specific skills and then would b- sell those skills basically to uh, a master, so to speak. So the prices of doctors and architects, musicians and, and, and vase painters, um, th- those prices were really high. I'm, I'm skilled. If you, if you want this done, if, if this is what you want, th- there's a high price here. After the sale, um, slaves would be employed as foster mothers, shepherds, guards, bath attendants, horse keepers, workers in the fields, mine, helpers in the workshops, um, servants in the home, etc. Lots of things. But the number of slaves in the city... I think the population in Ephesus at this time was about 250,000 people. There was roughly about 60,000 slaves in the area. Almost a quarter of the population was slaves. So Paul understands that as he's writing to the church in Ephesus, that many of the people sitting, listening to the reading of this letter are going to find themselves as slaves. That, that's the reality of where they're at at this point in time. Um, so we don't see Paul speak against slavery itself necessarily in the Roman era, but what he does is he takes action to speak against its, abuse, its abuses. He, he speaks to the slave, he speaks to the master to, to bring um, health into what could be corrupt and evil. I, I, re- I took this word for word from an article that I was reading in the 6th century AD because of the influence, because of the influence of Christianity, slaves gain some more rights such as participation in unions or real estate. Also, slaves who had shown trustiness to their Lord would be set free. It became possible for the slave to buy his or her freedom with the money he or she had saved. 
And because of these, it is possible to read about the slaves who became bankers or merchants later in life during history. It wasn't uncommon for slaves, like I said before, to, you know, to have this relationship with their master where they'd save up enough money, they could buy themselves freedom from their master, but they would willingly choose to stay and continue to work for their master because that relationship was good. They knew their master was going to provide for their needs. That's where their food was going to come from. That's where their income, that's how they were going to provide for their family. And it made sense for that person to stay and continue working for them. So I, I, I say all of that and kind of lay that foundation um, and... Because I, I think as we read it in our context, the way that this applies to us is we see it as this employer and employee relationship. The, the culture's definitely different, but for a lot of these slaves, um, you know, and, and this was their role of how they made a living and, and how they provided for their family and provided for themselves. So not ideal, yet Paul is speaking into the reality that slavery is a prevalent part of the culture and society at this time. So for best application for us as believers in this time, in a free country, in the free land, where we don't have slaves in our culture, um, I, I think we can read this, and, and, and for it to apply to us, we read it as employers, which I know there's people in the room who are employers, and I, I know there's people in the room who are employees, and there's principles for us to glean from this passage here, okay? Uh, could we put up Ephesians 6 through 9 back on the board, if you wouldn't mind? Take one more time to read through this. It says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of you uh, for the good that you do, whether we're slaves or free. There's this calling here for us again, for us as employees, men, our work is worship. The way we carry ourselves, the integrity that we live our lives with, right? and us to have this trust that God is gonna be the one who rewards me. But, but while I'm here, for the church to look mature, we, we need to live lives with integrity, right? We need, to work, we need to work as others as though we were working for the Lord. So, so what we see some principles here, and then he gives the same command to the employers. So all that to say, here, here's really the simple principles that we pull from it. Employers, deeply honor and respect those you employ. Deeply honor and respect those you employ, right? Uh, and, and then he says, employees work hard with enthusiasm and integrity. Work hard with enthusiasm and integrity. Now, Kim, you can come jump up on the keys if you want. I, I, we see Paul addresses a couple different demographics here. He addresses children, he addresses parents, he addresses masters, he addresses slaves. In all of these roles, we see Paul and other New Testament writers, they utilize these titles to help us understand God's relationship with us, which I find so interesting. As we go through the book of Romans, which is another letter that Paul wrote, we see this in, Ephesians, in Romans 6, verses 15 through 23. He writes this, well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can keep on sinning? Of course not. He says, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God. Once, we were slaves of, once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, slavery to sin and you become slaves to righteous living. 
So we see where Paul's using the culture. He's using the reality of what people are experiencing. And he's using it to to help communicate this relationship with God and and what it means to be reunited with Christ Jesus. Paul adds to this thought um, a few chapters later in Romans 8. And he says this. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Right? And why would a slave be fearful? Because they have an abusive master who doesn't care about their good, who's not interested in having a relationship, who only requires duty. He's saying, listen, you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you've received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. So now we call him Abba, Father. Translated, we call him Daddy, right? We have a relationship. He provides for my need. He disciplines me because he loves me, right? We, we have a relationship. We have intimacy. He's my dad. He's, that, that's what's happening in, in my union with his spirit. It says, now we call him Abba Father for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. What's so reassuring about observing how God wills his husbands to treat his wives? wives to treat their husbands, parents to treat their kids, kids to treat their parents, slaves to treat their masters, and masters to treat their slaves, you know, employers to treat their employees. All of it is a reflection of God's heart. All of it is a call for us. Hey, it doesn't matter what your title is. It doesn't matter what season of life life you're in. It doesn't matter how important or how little you are, you know, in, in, in terms of your, your role in society or your social class. The one thing remains, we are all called to honor each other. We are all called to not abuse one another, to not gossip about one another. We're called to honor people as if they all all have value and they all have significance. He's speaking into a culture that has class and social status and some people won't even be touched or bothered with because they're dirty and unclean. What the gospel is doing is it's bringing unity to all people. It's knitting together humanity. That's what we see. That's what Jesus has done for all of humanity. This is wild, right? I really believe it's because of, I really believe it's because God's heart for humanity, that's why we fought against some of these injustices, right? That's why we want people to experience wholeness and we want people to be treated equally and we want people to experience justice equally because we know every life matters. Every life is God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus for good works. So man, it doesn't matter what your title is. It doesn't matter where you find yourself in life. We have one role as Christians. For us to be the mature body God's called us to be, we need to deeply honor each other, right? And ultimately, we're slaves to righteousness in Christ Jesus. God's our father. We're his kids. That's the love. That's the playing field. That's our titles. That's who we really all are. And observing the church receive instruction on the dynamics of how God wills relationships to look, we learn so much about God's relationship with us. We learn so much about his heart for us, right? And we're affirmed that he loves us deeply, he has good things for us, and he cares for us greatly. And that's good news. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us. Special thanks to those of you who give to this ministry. It's because of you that this ministry is possible. You can check out the link in the description to give or visit destinychurch.me slash give. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. We love you and have a blessed week.